Hey listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Before we start this episode, I wanted to give a shout out to Gunnar Sonnenson, who is our first Patreon patron, and we appreciate his generous contribution to our show. It's greatly appreciated. In this episode of X Chateau, we're talking with Mark Warren and Tom Beaton, the co founders of Fitvine. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good afternoon. I was wondering if you could give Peter and I a brief overview of your backgrounds and how you got into the wine business. We didn't come from the wine world. Tom and I met almost two decades ago. We both come from the tech industry and had started our own small tech firm. And back then, it was really just to not work for somebody else, show up daily to a cubicle. So there was no real passion behind what we were doing, except for being entrepreneurs. It did pretty well and sold that. But we'd always been into wine. And you know we were really looking to move from services side of business into you know a product and be passionate about something we loved. So I got into CrossFit probably a little over ten years ago. Tom and I were both ex-athletes. Tom played hockey for decades. I was a martial artist trying to find a way of staying healthy. And as we kind of stumble into that, and I dragged Tom into CrossFit with me, we started going to some of these competitions or mud runs or some of these other kind of fitness events, and we see spirits there or beer and never wine. And, you know, Tom's like, hey, why is it wine is not kind of part of an active lifestyle? There's already a lot of times good attributes to it. And so we started really digging into the foundation of wine and saw that in the price point that majority of people drink at that kind of $15 price point. Unfortunately, there's a lot of components to wine that just like food can be overprocessed or things in it that just don't need to be there. So kind of our thought process was, could we create a great tasting wine that had some attributes to it? You know, super low sugar, low tannins, low sulfites, but still taste great and have all the alcohol. So that was kind of our initial mindset. Then we had a friend that had been in California for decades making wine. Tom had met him, God, probably 25 years ago and, you know, some of his previous tech endeavors out there. So we reached out to him and drank a lot of bad wine. <laughs> so we kind of came to him with our idea and said, is this the possibility? And so it took us a while to kind of come forth with something that really tasted good. Because at the end of the day, you can create something that has a little less sugar or other attributes, but if it doesn't taste good, who wants it? So that was really the premise behind creating Fitvine. I'd say the only thing that he missed is it seemed like an awfully fun business to get involved in. It's a lot more fun than software, hardware, or tech services. <laughs> so I was attracted to it and was a very much amateur wine drinker, but I'd always enjoyed wine. I spent a lot of time in California for work and got to Napa, Sonoma, whenever I could. And just I had always been drawn to the world and there was an opportunity to jump in. We really thought initially that we were going to get the weekend warrior, the triathlete, the person with the $2,000 cycling bike, the person that's watching every nutrient, et cetera. And we did get some of those people initially, but you know what? It turns out they don't drink that much, but what we did land on is usually their significant other. We kind of backed into this sort of, I don't want to insult anyone, but I call them the yoga moms. <laughs> they were at these races and events, and they drank a lot more usually than the people that were doing the events. And by the way, when I say yoga mom, it could be the yoga husband, yoga dad too. So significant other, yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's really the significant other. But the people that were at these events, sort of as a spectator, as sort of the cheering section, they loved the wine, and they were probably looking to make better choices. So that's really how we kind of backed into our demographic. Yeah, it was more the aspirational group, we'll call them. To Tom's point, they weren't the ones that were trying to do triathlons, CrossFit, yoga, this, that, but maybe saying, I'm going to make some better choices. Instead of going to get fast food at lunch, maybe I'll get a salad, or maybe I'll walk at lunch. So they were looking at all their consumption and just trying to make small choices. At the end of the day, they still wanted to have a glass of wine. So they're like, well, there's a better option here with a glass of wine, then I don't have to give it up. So that was kind of, as Tom said, you know, our stumbling point into the larger 
consumer base that we ended up finding instead of just as we thought it was going to be kind of these athletes. I use that excuse that my wife is going to have this bottle of wine with me when she just has a glass. (laughs) That's still the two of us consuming that bottle of wine, right? That's how it works. So FitFind's products are low in sugar, less than one gram per liter of sugar, but full in quotation marks alcohol, usually around 14%, as you guys mentioned before, and we'll talk about the other attributes of it. But what drove you to this combination of full alcohol, but less sugar? Because we normally see like low alcohol with low sugar and all that sort of thing, but this is like a different combination. I'll give you the glib but somewhat true answer, which is to me, like if I go through the trouble of opening a bottle of wine, I want all the alcohol. And I think that's the part that I really enjoy. And I think a lot of people will often answer in a focus group or you'll read these studies that, oh, millennials are drinking less. Maybe, but I think there's a little bit of, I don't necessarily believe that to be true in all cases. And I just think that the alcohol is obviously alcohol is tricky in some ways, but alcohol is one of those things in life that sometimes is a real enhancer and can help you wind down from a difficult day or is a good thing. So I wanted all the alcohol in the wine. Yeah, Peter, on the wine side of that, it has an impact on taste. So there is a true component to the taste of wine that alcohol brings forth. You can go back 25 years ago when beer first stepped down this path, people laughed at it. And the success of what's there today isn't because really the taste, you know, we won't throw names out there. You know, the biggest ones that have survived that are thriving is because it turned into where that fits in people's lifestyle. So cutting alcohol out of wine, they call it a dealkalization process, and it's an unnatural process, really makes it the best word I could use is thin. It doesn't taste good. And then they're adding either extra SO2 or other things to give some effervescence pop to it and as well as flavor additives. I mean, we've tested these wines and the wines that have almost half the alcohol still has four times the sugar level of our wines. So you may save a few calories, but when you go to your doctor, they don't say, Peter, eat 100 less calories. They're saying, stop eating processed foods and sugar and these other things. You can put two people side by side that have the same caloric intake that could look drastically different. So for us, we saw the beer companies fight that war for decades over a few less calories. When you go up Route 99 in Northern California, there's a big middle light billboard that says only five more calories, a hell of a lot better taste. So for us, it wasn't the caloric piece. It was really the sugar and flavor additives and the other things that aren't necessary to be in the wine. So alcohol does bring a component of taste in that body to the wine. The doctor does warn me to drink less alcohol, potentially. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a different story. <laughs> different story. It's an occupational hazard it's for you, Peter. Podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys emphasize a healthy lifestyle with FitVine and that the wines fit a healthy lifestyle. How do you define healthy? We want to go TTV rules. We can't speak to that at all. But for us, the word fit and people early on, because we started, I mean, we started this business very unconventional. We started it via DTC only on social media, and we were in gyms. We were in CrossFit gyms, we'd be in yoga studios, we'd go to spin cycles, we'd stand at Lululemon, anywhere anybody would let us pour wine. So initially, people thought, oh, you were gym wine, just fit mean fitness. Really, for us, fit means how does wine fit into your lifestyle? There's four of us on here, we all have different lifestyles. So what wine means to you is different to me than to Tom and to Robert. So really, we look at how does it become balanced in your life? And whether Tom said like it's end of the night and someone has a glass of wine to wind down from a stressful day, but we want them to be able to enjoy that on a Tuesday and get up Wednesday and still feel good. You know, you shouldn't have that negative impact from having just one or two glasses of wine because there's something in that that may cause you to have a headache, a hand swell, whatever it is. So for us, it was about how does wine fit or balance in your life? And everybody has a different balance based on where they are in life. And so that was it. We thought if we could bring some positive impact or relief of stress to people's lives at some point in the day, then that's a win for us. So that's what we really looked at as far as what that lifestyle means, because it means something different to everybody. That's right. That was going to be my point, Mark, where we've run into thousands and thousands of people. We've done thousands of events and everyone's choices, everyone's lifestyle is a little bit different. We're just hoping to make a wine that could fit into people's lifestyle. So I'm curious, because especially in the last two years, we've seen a bunch of new market segmentation in the wine industry emerge, especially in this kind of like price point range. And people have used terms like clean wines or low sugar, low alcohol, better for you is the other. And none of these terms mean anything, which a lot of the industry gets upset about that because anybody could start calling these things that. I'm curious on how FitFine compares to what you guys think of those terms or how you differentiate yourself from those products, because I think you've chosen your words very carefully. 
in how you're using your branding. I'm just curious on what your thoughts are on those segmentations. I think we had a little bit of a lot of success initially. We just kind of got out there and kind of snuck under the radar and built a solid business. And I think a lot of people from the wine world and outside of the wine world saw that and said, oh, we should do this too. And came in with a lot of terms and things like that, that you just mentioned. And and I can say this, I understand sometimes where that really ruffles the feathers a little bit because I'm thinking of one brand in particular that came out with a pretty major celebrity and said all these things. And I think they got knocked around pretty quickly and deservedly so, because what we've always tried to do is be a little bit careful. Like, here's our product. We're trying to do the best thing. Maybe it works for you. Maybe it's for you. Maybe it's not. But I don't want to knock. I think we've never knocked anyone else of what they're trying to do. We're just trying to run in our own lane. And I do think, I guess just to reiterate, I can understand why there was some frustration out there with some of those other brands that have come along in the last, I don't know, 24 months. Yeah, you know, the better for you category, even you look at industry standards like Nielsen, they're unsure of what that category even means. And for us, we've always tried to be transparent. And the TTB will come out and say, based on FDA and TTB rules, if you're less than one gram of sugar per liter, you can say it's sugar-free. We feel like that's reckless. There's no such thing as sugar-free alcohol. And alcohol converts into sugar in your body. So, you know, we've tried to be transparent about what we're creating. Like Tom said, we're not here to throw darts at the industry giants. And there's plenty of great wine. And unfortunately, there's hundreds of thousands of brands out there. When you take all the small producers, when you go across Europe and South America and Australia. So for us, we focused in on here in the U.S., that average price point now that's risen into that kind of $15 area. And then what are the 90% of people drinking? You know, 90% of the people in the U.S. that are buying wine don't have much knowledge about wine. They're unsure. Usually it's based on a recommendation. They don't have that. Then they're going in and be like, oh, is that a pretty label? And even then, we felt like a lot of times, and we hear this from our consumers, they've told us, we've done a lot of research, they've talked to us that they're confused by even the notes. We'll have people reach out to us and be like, hey, do you have any wine without chocolate in it? Or leather, I'm allergic to those. And we're like, no, unfortunately, those are tasting notes. So they see those in other things. And we've even tried to take our tasting notes away from that to try and just simplify it and make it approachable. So then when it comes to where we stand in the category, yeah, that wine, the word clean is dangerous. We've heard that early on as we got into retail. Retailers would tell us like, hey, it's really not a good word to use because now you're saying to people, hey, if they can only afford Fitvine once a month and they may already feel guilty drinking alcohol, are they going to feel more guilty when they can't afford to buy a Fitvine the other time of the week? So you're going to be careful on how you're positioning yourself. So for us, it was more like, here's who we are, here's what's in our wine, and here's what's not. So that was really to be a company that's transparent. And we looked outside of alcohol. We looked at great brands that have done this brand, like, you know, if you eat protein bars, like RX Bar, no BS, here's our three main ingredients. That was kind of our same approach. Like, we're not going to say Johnny X makes bad wine. We're just going to tell you, here's how we make our wine. Here's what's in our wine and here's what's not. Because unfortunately, there's a lot of stuff in wine out there that can be negatively impactful to the body. I know it's kind of a long-winded answer there, but, you know, the better for you, who knows where that lands as far as a wine category. We feel like we're wine first with some attributes. That's really how we look at ourselves. Not whether they want to throw us into the better for you category, right? We'll take it as we're the leader in that, but it's really for us, we're here for the long term and it's about creating great tasting wine. And then if it has some attributes behind it that people can resonate to, that's a plus. So you may have kind of answered this question already, but a lot of wines outside of those major industrial produced wines are low in sugar and have regular alcohol. Like I can think of entire categories like Muscadet or Chablis. How do you feel like you compare with them? And is it, I think part of your answer that you just said is you don't have to know those categories then to buy those attributes in wine, but I don't know if there's anything else. You're spot on here. I mean, that's tough. People say, oh, I went to Europe and I drank four bottles a day and I felt great. Well, most of the wine you're drinking for 8 or $9 when you're in Italy, it was made in someone's basement and they're making a couple hundred cases a year. That's not the same 8 or $9 bottle of wine that's coming to the U.S. That's where the confusion and people feel like if they don't have that knowledge, Peter, they don't even know where to go. And unfortunately, fortunately and unfortunately, because we do very well in grocery, most grocery stores that you go in, if they're buying, there's not someone who is educated in wine to guide them that way. That person could have been selling coffee a month ago, and then they get moved into wine. Two months later, they'll be in beauty and whatever. So unless they're going to a specialty wine shop that someone has the knowledge to guide them, they're really confused and they're uncertain. So that's where, for us, we said, okay, if you're in this price point, and you know, we can tell you, here's where we are as a great California wine, 
that's what I'm saying. We're not saying there's not other wines out there do well, but it's very hard to try and dig through the stuff you could find out of South America or Southern France, wherever, that's in that same price point that brings those attributes. People are just trying to go about their day. They want to get a bottle of wine as they're going down that aisle before they get to bread. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it matches with their bread, pairs with their that's bread. That's right. Peter, to that point, it was for us, it was really trying to be a go-to brand that they could trust that is transparent about it. And I have a wine cellar with about 3,000 bottles in it. It's not all fit fine. My wife is one of those people, early 40s, you know, we go out to dinner and she gets a bottle of wine and has a glass. Well, if it's something shitty, within a few minutes, she can't get her wedding ring off. Which she really is trying to do. Yeah, trying to get rid of me. <laughs> so you're constantly giving her non-fit wine wine. <laughs> yeah, we've made our own list. If, you know, if she wants something, you know, a nice bottle of wine, whatever, because price doesn't always dictate that. You know, I have some neighbors that I think I'm the youngest in my area of community that drink a lot of expensive wine. One of my neighbors, he's a couple decades older than me, and he drinks a lot of very expensive wine. And I came across Tom, you know, we travel all the time, and I was in like a Vino Volo, and guys like, oh, here are some of our specialty wines. I grabbed a couple of bottles. One of them was a 2016 Buccella. You know, I think it was 150, 160 bucks a bottle. He's like, this is fantastic. It was so tannic. I had a headache within a glass. I'm like, maybe a fantastic wine, but it's just not something I can drink. I gave a bottle to my neighbor. He's like, oh, what'd you give me? He's like, I don't normally drink Napa wine. That was amazing. I'm like, I get two more for it. Here you go. <laughs> so that's where people are in this price point. And Tom said, they're just trying to get through their day and they want to grab something they go home and enjoy. It's hard to like siphon through total wines with 8,000 choices, let alone take it into tens of thousands of other brands you can get attached to. So for us, it was really just kind of putting our stake in the ground to give them something that they could feel confident they understood what was in the wine and the attributes behind it. And so you mentioned transparency is sort of a key part of your brand. And one of the things that I found really interesting and I wish the wine industry did more of was you have a nutritional breakdown of all your wines. So you have the average amount of sugar, calories, carbohydrates, and alcohol for all your wines, which is great. And they're not all the same, which is amazing. <laughs> great where a lot of people you'll see across their brands, the alcohol is exactly the same because it's within the range that it could be. So it's not actually that accurate. But could there be more? And are you guys thinking about there being more? Because when I think about the benefits of wine versus, as you mentioned, spirits or beer earlier, there's vitamins or antioxidants or minerals like potassium that have positive health impacts. LeBron James jokes that red wine helps keep him going for this long because partly the potassium does help, help your muscles and all that sort of stuff. What areas of transparency outside of nutritional do you focus on? And have you thought about doing more of these things? So I'll start on the first half with the nutrient base. So early on, we did, we started looking at resveratrol levels and all those things. The TTB quickly made the phone call stop because you start then tipping to the point of guiding people towards health, which no alcohol can do. You get sub 9% alcohol and you don't deal with the TTB, you only deal with the FDA. And that's why if you look at like a beer or a seltzer, they have a full nutritional panel on the label where you step into spirits or wine and you only have that thin line. And we're not allowed to put a lot of stuff. So as much as we would like to be able to say those other things, you can't. You know, LeBron could do it because he's not promoting his own wine. That's where, unfortunately, we're limited to that kind of information that could go forth. Now, as far as what we do try to put out there, it's outside of that. So like sugar is not part of that standard line. And a lot of times people don't even disclose what their residual sugar is. So but we have talked to the TTB, and as long as we're giving factual information, we can put it on like the POS, we can put it on our website. And so we're trying to add as much information that's not normally found out there for people. Because unfortunately, as you mentioned, people will kind of put it as a grouping. Well, you go into Google and they'll say, glass of red wine is X. That's impossible. You know what I mean? There's 100 different thousand types of red wine out there. So how are you going to just say, oh, this is your average? It's not even close. So we test every batch of our wine. We do it with the third-party lab that's been around for over 40 years in California, ETS Labs. We've also tested competitor sets, Low Alk, the top 10 selling wines, so that we're being specific to the information we're giving out there, so that we're not giving ranges. And if it changes per vintage or whatever, we're adjusting those numbers. We had our Albarino, first run of Albarino was 14.1% alcohol. Our next one was down to 12.5%. So we're going to change that and change the specs to go along with that. So we try and make sure that we give the information out there for people. So they, again, they're getting black and white knowledge about what's there. Because unfortunately, you're not going to find that in a search or much of the information that's out there. 
Do you share that information in terms of when you're testing competitors? Because one of my struggles is that some people in this space have used generalizations around you're getting a cup of sugar versus our wine. But if you're actually testing the top 10 in market, that's not fear-mongering. That's just like data. And I'm curious if you ever share that or if you've been cautious to share that information publicly because it could be detrimental. We've gone around and around on it. Some of these companies are so big, particularly the top 10 brands, that I feel like it's like a mouse poking at the elephant. Like, I don't know. I imagine my fear, what keeps me up is, yeah, we make factual statements and then we're just inundated with the biggest lawsuit in the world, frankly. (laughs) And Robert, I mean, 76% of the wine sold in the U.S. is sold by four companies. So to Tom's point, and Tom mentioned the pretty actress earlier, we won't throw her under the bus. When you talked about Peter, that word clean, she came out front and center with that and was ripped in half. Every top wine manufacturer went after a head first. So for us to poke multiple bears simultaneously, we feel could be extremely detrimental. Now, when we speak to our distributors and to stores, we will give verbal exact stats. And we can kind of give generalizations that we know the top 10 selling wines, we have 90% less sugar. The low alk wines have four times the sugar of ours. But to put a AB comparison list out there... <laughs> We feel it's just as a business would not suit well as far as what could come forth. And we just said we're going to run our own game. If people want that, that's great. It's expensive to do the testing. It really is. But we think it's important. And my assumption is as time goes on, the TTB will be forced to allow us to put more information on the back and then let the consumer decide. I'm a huge fan of transparency and labeling. I know Ridge put some stuff on there that They've been grandfathered in and they put everything from benthanite to like whatever, any of the filtering are fine. They sit it all. So they're just perfectly transparent. They don't do the calorie breakdown like you guys do, but I do appreciate that. I wish the industry did more of that. So let's talk about the market because you guys are building out this market segment. I am curious on the market you're addressing and how big is it? How can we quantify that? Because the goal of the show is to talk about the business aspect and I'd like to understand the sizing of this space. Yeah, I mean, Tom alluded to this earlier, our initial kind of consumer that really get behind the brand, whether you call it Yoga Mom, Gen X, Mom, Dad, they were really the kind of early adopters of the brand that kind of really drove the power through Whole Foods. I mean, Whole Foods called us in 2016. And once we started with them in retail in 2017, it was a consumer going in and demanding to carry it. And then regional buyers caught on all the regional buyers and with how we kind of spread like wildfire through retail. So that kind of Gen X, male, female, was not an athlete, but kind of in that realm of space of kind of lifestyle and looking at choices they're paying attention to, they were our early adopters. I mean, as we expanded, I mean, we have direct data from our DTC sales that we show from early 20s to late 70s that buy our wine. I mean, our number one consumer on DTC is a mid-60s female in Florida who's purchased $49,500 worth of wine from us in just over two years. So we have a broad range, but our big demographics as of now, where we kind of focus is kind of Gen X, male, female, and millennials have come on hot. We've driven a lot of new wine buyers in male and female. And, you know, numbers, I mean, we think it's from what our marketing side of the aisle team shows us, you're looking at somewhere between 85 and 100 million Americans that we're reaching. Well, now in Canada. So, you know, that's right. We've launched into Eastern Canada. So it's probably, you're looking at under a third of the population and probably half the alcohol drinkers in the U.S. Prior to, you know, the last two years and you guys launching, do you think that the wine industry hasn't done a good job communicating to this segment and have just overlooked it? I think the wine industry has done, and this is, I was going to say a terrible job. I just feel like just doing so many events and so many consumers. And I know you guys are kind of in this world, right? So it might be hard and it's like a hard pill for anyone to say. And who am I to really say this? But I feel like when people walk into the wine aisle, they are intimidated. They feel like they're not a wine expert. They feel like they don't know enough. And their big fear is that they're going to look stupid. Same thing when the sommelier comes over or there's a wine list or things like that. To me, wine has always been presented and marketed as this thing that you probably don't have enough knowledge about. And for most people, it's not their life. They love a glass of wine. They're like me, where they have one thing, either green light or red light. I can't really give you tasting notes on anything other than I like it or I don't like it. (laughs) That's it. I wasn't born with the palate other than green light, red light. And I think the way that the industry has always been marketed intimidates the vast majority of consumers. So it's not just this better for you category, it's the entire category. Yeah, I'll add to that. I think another word may be a little stuffy. 
you know what I mean, where the intimidation factor and kind of proper stuffy, like you, know, you guys are around our age. And I remember the old movie, Tom would yell at me when I tell the distributors this. He's like, there's too many young people in here that don't understand the reference. They had no but idea. the old movie was Sinbad, House Guest. You know, and Sinbad's got the sommelier, <laughs> like pounding the wine and dancing on the table. You know, most people do get nervous with it. Our phone number still rings to my cell. I mean, we take inbound calls. We get six to 800 comments a day on social media. We'll have calls that come in and we'll listen to the voicemails. And this isn't a young person that's unsure. I mean, customers be like, oh, you know, I, I placed a soda and I'm having difficult locating it. It was Sauvignon, sa- I don't know. I don't speak French. I'm trying to say Sauvignon Blanc. So they get that kind of nervous that they sometimes they can't even say the varietals. So that intimidation factor hasn't really changed over the years and why. So I think it's not a matter of segmentation. It's a matter of approach. So kind of the approach of go back to the early days of Blue Ocean with Yellowtail. Yellowtail kind of brought that approachability of these big colors in a big bottle, little sugar to it that was a sweet tasting wine and a large format for eight bucks. And that was kind of that sub $10 wine was rising. That hit the nail on the head because people are like, great, I can just grab this thing with a kangaroo and go. Now step into this price point and that may start getting people a little more out of their comfort zone, even though it is now the number one price point and the number one rising segment. It is a little more thought to it that if you're going to invest 13, 14, 15, 16 bucks, you're hoping it tastes good. Buy $5. I mean, that's pretty much what people pay for coffee today. If it doesn't taste good and you pour it out, you're not mad. You buy a bottle of wine for 15, 17, 18 bucks and it doesn't taste good, you know, you're a little annoyed. So for us, that approachability. Obviously, one of the factors is like there's a whole pivot across all the food and beverage towards more wholesome food, healthier food, knowing where your food is coming from. So timing is awesome. But I'm curious on all the stuff you just mentioned that you think the industry is doing poorly. That's great. But how have you changed what your messaging is to remedy that and justify it? Like, what is your secret sauce in terms of your branding and messaging and like how you've got it out there in terms of building that up? What have you done differently? I'll lean back to, I think, the transparency. Part of it is, as like I said, 70 plus percent of the wine sold by four big companies. There's no faces behind these brands anymore. The last real face in this price point was just Jackson. He was a character. You know, I mean, he was an attorney. He was a police officer. He was all these things in his life and then stumbled into wine when he was supposed to retire. And he was a powerhouse. And that became like Nancy Reagan Chardonnay. You know, there really hasn't been, and not that Tom and I are trying to be this face of a brand, we're not like The Rock or somebody or whatever with their alcohols, but that kind of gives the delivery of how we built this brand and the approachability and whether we've gone from zero cases to 400,000 cases and you can still reach us on our cell phone, that kind of individual brand, we're not under one of these beasts, I think is kind of opened the door that people have felt a trust and a comfortability about our transparency that they maybe not have early on where they are. So if they're buying wine based on a recommendation or they just one of those big brands that's now turned into a four or five million case monster, they see it everywhere and they're like, ah, oh, must be good, I'll grab it. I think that's the differentiator that's been for us. Now, how far can we carry that? Can we get up into becoming a top 15, top brand in the US? You know, that's yet to see because there's a lot of power behind having to build a brand as you guys know and distributor relations and all those other things. But where we are today has really been based on our consumer because we've been consumer focused first. Most of the wine industry, the brands that get released are done so under one of the behemoths. And so they'll take some study, focus group, whatever it is, or think, all right, the hottest thing is X. And then they'll launch a brand and use the power of their channel and distributors to force it out there. We went consumer first. And so that's what we stuck by. And as we've elevated our relationships with our distributors and turned our distributor channel into all the blue chip guys in the country, we're starting to get some of that power that they deliver to the channel. But really, we've maintained our relationship first consumer base. I mean, any extension we've done has been because of consumers asking for it. I mean, we started originally with Cabernet and Chardonnay. And as we added varietals and SKUs, it was because our consumers saying, hey, will you guys make this? We love your cab. Could you do this in a Pinot Grigio? Could you do this in a Prosecco? Our growth has been based on the consumer interaction, which I think is rare. I think it's rare in this price point. Obviously, this is done as you get up into beautiful wines. Like we know the team well at Farniente and Nickel and Nickel and single vintage estate grown wines that we love. Different price point at 100 plus dollars a bottle. That's not seen you know, in this price point. So I think that relationship that we've maintained with our consumer has made a big differentiator. Yeah, I'd say the only thing that is, and maybe you touched on it, is I've always wanted to be extremely approachable. I remember when we were first starting out and I walked down a wine aisle and it's just this sea of beige kind of off-white labels. And when we were thinking about designing our very first label, which we did in my kitchen, 
I was like, the one thing I don't want is a beige chateau or river on the label. I think that's covered at this point. I think the consumer knows what that is. So let's be approachable. Let's try a little bit fun. See if we can enter into this space and be a little less stuffy. And at the end of the day, we're just making wine. We're not doing surgery. So it's not that big of a deal. So as you mentioned, you guys are one of the fastest growing brands in your price category, according to Nielsen and IRI data. What have been the biggest drivers of your growth? I would say one of the biggest drivers since day one, we've just gone out there and tried to sample and meet people at every single opportunity. Markets mad because I just say yes to everything. Oh, can we sample at, you know, this yoga studio, this and that. And we did that from the beginning. We would do 50th birthday parties. We would do really anywhere where we could set up a folding table and sample wine. In the early days, we were sampling and then handing out a postcard to send them to a terrible WordPress website where you'd take like a 12-step checkout process. But then all of a sudden, like we'd be at a carnival or whatever, and people would see orders start to come in from anywhere. So to me, in the marketing people hate when I say this, is really just basic stuff where if you have an opportunity to sample wine, say yes. That's driven a tremendous amount of sales. Peter, even last year during whatever heck you want to call 21, second year of the craziness, we still did over 5,000 events. Wow. So that's, to Tom's point, it's getting on the street because early day, I mean, Tom and I, I mean, I can't even tell you how many thousands of tastings we've done ourselves. Hundreds of times people would take a sip and like, oh, wow, this doesn't taste like shit. And they take another <laughs> sip and like, this actually tastes good. So, you know, it's that initial premise is people like, what did you do to my wine? What did you take out of it? We wanted to make sure, and I use the reference of trying to trick your kids to eat cauliflower rice instead of regular rice. We didn't want to be the cauliflower rice of wine. It has to be wine first. And I mean, at the end of the day, whatever product it is, that's why you see a lot of in food and CPG, they went away from fat-free or sugar-free because people had that predisposition in their mind, like, oh, you took something out of it. You know, so people, you know, we tell them, hey, you want to taste a great tasting glass of wine? And if you tell them the attributes first, they're already going into it like this, so getting in front of the consumer and letting them taste it and letting them enjoy the wine and then giving them kind of the story behind it makes a huge difference so that we've kept our foot on the gas through pandemic whatever else you want to call it you know we have teams that are out there following every single solitary safety protocol whether they're in full mass whatever it is but the crucial piece is still getting in front of new people that have yet to heard of the brand or had but were a little unsure of buying it first without tasting it so that's been a huge component for us is just making sure we're getting out there, touching as many people as possible to get them to taste the wine. And they're pretty loyal. I mean, our repeat buy is amazing. We hear that from retailers that, you know, they keep coming back. So you can do well with marketing to get somebody to try something once. But at the end of the day, if the product doesn't taste good, whatever it is, they're not going to come back. So that's really been success of the combination of creating a really good tasting glass of wine and getting out there and putting the effort into making sure we get in front of people. And like I said earlier, staying consumer focused. So it's not just channel focus where they're used to just kind of slamming things out there and using the power distributor. We say consumer focus to make sure we get out and talk to them, taste the wine, and then back it up with a good product. And so does meeting all these thousands of people really push your direct-to-consumer business or the wholesale side or both? Originally, we only had the DTC business. So that's what it started as. And then in our early days, we started with, I don't know, four or five Whole Foods. So we would send them to those local Whole Foods. And then the Whole Foods buyers kind of spread across the US. I would say this, just to answer honestly, if you order from our DTC or our website, you still have to wait a couple of days to get wine, which is fine. And FedEx may deliver it or they may not when you want them to. But I think the pandemic changed things. So if you want something, you want it right now, you'll see you know, the rise of Instacart, Grizzly, Mini Bar, you know, the Omni Chain. the other one? Go Puff, right? Go Puff, yeah. These places have gone bananas kind of in the age of the pandemic because I think at first people were like, well, maybe we're all going to die. I want my wine right now within 20 minutes. And then I think the behaviors changed. As Mark mentioned, like Instacart will get it to your door within an hour. So it's kind of hard to wait around for FedEx. 48 hours seems like an interminable wait. Somehow I've just collapsed our DTC business there with my answer to this. <laughs> look at this. We've got DTC, we have retail, we're in over 25,000 locations. By the end of this year, we'll be in over 35,000. 
and then the omni-channel. So to Tom's point, whether it's Instacart, Drizzly, GoPuff, you know, that delivery, we're happy if they buy anywhere. Now on DTC, we do have some varietals only that are on there that we do limited runs on to try and take our loyal customers and say, let us introduce you to something like an Albarino or a Chenin Blanc or something that they may not have ever heard of. So we do things like that, that we're trying to give different offerings that allow us to also test a skew. So if we bring out a few or a varietal online first and it goes bananas, then we can open up to the distributor instead of just putting it out to the store and just saying, here's another one. And they're like, you know, you've got eight SKUs that do fantastic. And then this one's a dog. So instead of bothering trying to put something on the shelf, also allows us as we grow that maybe we can open up the doors to something like a state grown cab at some point that may be a little more expensive. So the DTC will always be there. It's kind of state level. These past three years as our retail has gone like this. So for us, we consider that growth. But as Tom mentioned, with the massive, massive spike in omni-channel, it does pull from that DTC. And so we have all the analytics from Instacart and GoPuff and these guys, and we're up 1,800%. So for us, we'll consider that DTC. So if our consumer used to buy direct from us, now gets it off one of those sites, we're fine with that. It's really, we want to be able to service them anywhere they're happy purchasing. So if we can offer it in all three areas, and that's a win. So wholesale has now gotten a lot bigger than DTC for you guys? Yeah. Yeah. DTC now is less than 10% of our business. And you mentioned that, you know, obviously getting out to all the events and all that's been the most effective marketing channel for you. Have there been other things you guys have done that have really been effective? We've done a lot of things bad. We've tested a lot of things that we just said, okay, we'll test it. It's hard because marketing is one of those things that you have to touch people in so many areas and not everything's measurable. And we've been such a small team. We haven't always had the tools in place to measure. So Early on, I think it was 2017, we signed a contract with the Boston Red Sox. We weren't even profitable. We really had no right doing that, but it was really to try and get out and test being in that kind of traditional 100-plus-year-old sport to see if are we attractive sitting inside a stadium. And we created our single-serve 187s. You know the old adage, you go out to the baseball for a hot dog and a glass of Cabernet. You know, so, you know, we tested that with a couple of teams and they did well. I mean, we sell well in the stadiums, but you add in the business aspect of the multi-layered piece with what's in there with the companies who actually run the stadiums is just not well spent money. So, you know, we've tested a lot of things like that to see where we best reach our consumer. It's still, I'd say what's driven us well is being agile. We have to be able to react and change as people's shopping habits change and their attentions change. I mean, you can look at I'm not going to say rise and fall, but you can look at the drastic change in behavior, even on Facebook. Facebook went up like this and was outrunning every single solitary media channel out there. And then it's, you know, kind of coming off this other side. And now there's other areas. So what you guys do, the rise in podcast, we've tested that with some guys out there have some amazing podcasts and how that reaches. So it is kind of an ebb and flow to kind of see what best reaches people because people have such ability to reach content instantaneously, which was never the case even when we were kids, that it's hard to just say one vertical is the best thing to do because it's a constant change. And there's so much noise that goes on, whether it's pandemic, politics, everything else, you know, people will shut things off fast and move in other areas. So it's kind of, we'll keep our hands in a few different things and kind of react and see what works best. But it's always really around the same format to make sure that we can reach the consumer, but then hear back from them. That's our focus point is just making sure that we're getting positive feedback from that. So we've got tools that listen in so that if we're running something with a podcast or something else that we're hearing that if people are reacting positively to that, not like, why the hell would you be on that person's podcast? And it's really listening to make sure that we're reaching people appropriately. One area we loosely covered in the beginning, but didn't dive into is you guys talk about your wines are low in tannins. And histamines. And I'm curious on why both of those are important in your marketing materials. I hear histamines quite a bit in other marketing, but you're one of the few places that actually mentions tannins. Tannins are one of those tricky things that people aren't in some knowledge of wine and how it's produced. Tannins can be added and tannins kind of can give that big steakhouse punch to a wine, but people don't realize sometimes it does come with a punch. So, you know, a tannic wine does add a lot of taste and a lot of things to it. But for, I would say, a non-seasoned wine drinker, if you were to take a big tannic wine and someone who's kind of new to wine or, you know, is looking for something approachable, they're not going to enjoy that. So for us, you know, that approachability is also approachability and taste. So not being like a kind of big, heavy wine and being that more approachable and easier drinking wine for someone who may be moving away from 
say a seltzer or something else are new to the category, or they're just uncertain. They're not understanding big tannic wine may do well, like sitting with a big steak, but on every day, like normal, does that impact somebody? And that does tie into when you add in things like sugar and histamines and sulfites, does that cause a negative impact? And no one can pinpoint science on like, this gives you a headache, this gives you this. But when you add all of those components together, we listen to the feedback of our consumers like, hey, I drank this type of wine and I got GI issues, I got headaches, I get hand swelling, I get these things. So as we looked at kind of all the noise that we would hear out there, well before we started this, and we were kind of researching what we were doing. We looked at, is it a combination of all these things? Is it one of these things? But if we were to, as we kind of created the wine and tasting through the wines, is we looked at these things all combined. So being low sugar, low tannins, low histamines, not using any flavor additives, things like mega purple or any of those things, can A, the wine taste good, B, is it kind of an approachable taste? So that's where getting out and tasting people who don't know much about wine or new to wine, and they're like, oh, well, this tastes good. What were the reactions to it? So those were kind of our thought process. Now, is that scientifically driving something? I can't give you that answer, Robert. You know, but for us, we knew the tannins did tend to have impact on kind of the depth of the wine. And for people who are looking for like an approachable wine, a lot of times it was pushing them away from it. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense that because of the price point you're targeting and where your consumers are coming from, they're expecting something smoother, not as harsh. And so you're you're being mindful of that. So it's more of a flavor profile than basically a sensitivity to phenols. Correct. Okay, got it. And definitely you're not adding tannins into it because anytime you have a red wine, you're going to get tannins. We're not adding additional or doing things like that because that is, as you guys know, the winemaking process and as you get into real fine wine, that is art and science of getting the flavor profile you want. but to your point, in our price point, people who are trying to find an approachable wine, it didn't kind of fit what we were looking for in that taste profile. And you're not removing tannins that are made during the wine process and pulling stuff out. You're just not adding additional tannins. Correct. Because a lot of times, like the tannins for us and many of the things are a good thing in terms of it's a preservative. It helps the wine age. Yes. It has a lot of the things like the revestrol and stuff like that. You also mentioned on your website, triple filtering the wine. How do you do this and still keep the flavor of the wines without being excessive filtering? Because a lot of times filtering can be heavy handed. Yes. So this is where technology comes in. So the latest and greatest technology is cross-flow triple filtration. So that cross-flow system is designed that it's not going through three traditional diametaceous earth filterings where you're saying wood strip down those things. So it's done in a way that is, I want to use the word soft, but sensitive to the wine. So that really it's just trying to get out pectins and any of these things that could be left behind. I know you talk about like unfiltered wines and it's, again, a whole different approach. You know, people have to understand what they're drinking and they like that type of wine. Someone new to wine wouldn't know that and be like, what do I have in here? So for us, again, that approachability, but using the technology of the crossbow filtration does protect the wine that it's not, like you're saying, stripping it. It's really just trying to remove any of the leftover stuff that could be there in the winemaking process that don't need to be in there. And you're doing that three times? Well, the system itself causes it to be triple filtered. So it's not like we've run it through the filtration three times. Okay. We just invested last year in a new bottling line that's built by a company in Italy called MBF, and it's what's called a super block system. So it's a standalone clean room. It's, I mean, the technology's amazing. So part of that is all surgical stainless steel, how the tanks are cleaned and purified immediately before the wine even touches it. So it's all really just technology so that there's zero potential of contamination from anything coming in, whether it be water or whatever. So the filtration, they call it a triple filter, but it's not like it's going through that system three times. So the stages within the filtering system of how it's done to gently remove these things without, like you're saying, you know, harming the wine and kind of damaging it down. Okay, so it's cross-flow filtering, and in that cross-flow, its standard is triple filtering. Correct. Got it, okay. To part of that point, Robert, if you were to take our Cabernet and go grab a $15 bottle of Cabernet off the shelf and put them side by side, our coloring is a little lighter, but it's the natural color. We're not using Mega Purple. I mean, a lot of these companies, you guys know, they'll want to throw in the Mega Purple to make that $15 bottle of wine look like a $50 bottle of wine. But as you guys know, you can't add sugar. That's chapterization. But mega purple is concentrate, and that brings sugar back into the wine process. So for us, we'd rather it be a little lighter, which is its natural color, without having that sugar reintroduced into the wine. Bringing that back into how you make your wines and kind of dived into that a little, where do you source the fruit from your wines? Is it the same fruit sources every year? Or assume these are like private label bulk wines? No, we're not buying fruits on the bulk market. We're partnered into a winery. We have our own AP. And so we have our own contracts with our growers. So we're controlling from grape to bar. 
So it's all the same grapes. It's all Lodi region with a little in the Delta and a little comes out of Mendocino County, but it's all our stuff that's contracted. So we're controlling from grape to bottle every year and everything's grown to our specs. Everything's sustainably raised. We had two farms that hadn't been certified yet that just got the certification on our last 2019 vintage. So by the summer, because we didn't want to have like three or four, say, sustainably raised, not everything else. So by the summer, all our labels will have the certification on there for sustainably raised. But for us, it's controlling grape to bottle, doing to our specifications. We're not using pesticides. We test out everything with ETS so that we test out pesticides, no molds, no arsenic. I mean, it's really important to us to try and deliver the best glass of wine we can at this price point that tastes good. You mentioned Prosecco earlier. So are you also importing some wine from Italy or are all the wines domestic? All the wines are domestic with the exception of the Prosecco. So our Prosecco, we partner with one of the largest families out there. They do an amazing job. So it's coming from Veneto, Italy, and it's being done the exact same way. We're creating our wines in California. They've been there for, God, 100 years. And so... No, I think it's hundreds. Well, maybe hundreds, yes. Fantastic, fantastic (laughs) Prosecco for us, but done to the same specifications. Sugar, as you know, with carbonation, and it does bring the sugar up some. So all our wines have 0.09 grams of sugar or less, with the exception of the Prosecco. The Prosecco is an extra brute dry. It has 0.7 grams of sugar, but it is an amazing Prosecco. If you don't mind saying, how much wine are you guys making these days? We produce in 2021 just under 425,000 cases. So going into 2022, that will probably rise somewhere in the range of 600,000. Awesome. So I'm curious, given that you guys have a slightly different viewpoint on the industry, I'm curious on what trends are you guys seeing in the wine market that you think the rest of the market should wake up and pay attention to? That's a good question. I want to think about our answer for a second. I'll jump in first. You know, I mean, we're left and right brain, but we always end up in the middle. So we work well together. We have different points, but have the same goals. I would say the initial approach of looking at what we've done, coming out with half the alcohol, I don't think is sustainable. I know the UK has kind of got their own thing going on with low alk, no alk, spirits, beer, wine, whatever. I think with wine, Tom said earlier, I mean, if you're going to take the effort and time to open a bottle of wine, you're doing it for a reason. And the alcohol does have an impact on the taste. Now, obviously, overindulgence of everything is not beneficial. So I think the wine industry in itself, a different approach to educating the consumer has to be taken. I think the old days of, and I'm not knocking the people at Robert Parker, but I think you start taking the up and coming generation, they're not even going to know what Robert Parker is. Most people don't understand the point system. The point system to me doesn't tell me just because it's 98 points that it's going to taste good. So I think a different approach of giving people an idea of what's in that bottle should be taking note, whether it's low sugar or not. I mean, whether it's a $15 bottle or a $150 bottle, I think giving people a much different vision of what, when you say it has notes of X, Y, and Z, what that really means. I think that's still a massive, massive hurdle for people. Look around anything else. You go take a beer. They're going to tell you, hey, these hops are going to taste like X. If you take a spirit, this bourbon is different from this rye or this scotch, and here's why, because it was aged in these barrels. Or I think one successful approach they've done on wine, and they'll come flat out and say, oh, this Cabernet was aged in bourbon barrels. It's going to taste smoky. That's kind of very basic. And you've seen the rise of all these companies jump on board and come out with that version of that. So that's kind of a very basic version for people to say, okay, I like bourbon. This is going to have kind of a smoky taste to it. And I like red wine. Those sound good together. So I think the industry in itself, and as the category has changed for buying, where grocery has come on hot and fast, even Costco is the largest reseller of wine in the world. There's not always somebody available that can give you a lot of information in there. People go in and they know the brands they like for whatever they're buying. They're like, I can just buy it here cheaper. So I think giving people the ability to get information in shorter bits that makes more sense to them. I think that should be something that wine hasn't done that's being done in the rest of the category of alcohol. Okay. Yeah, that's true. I would say my answer is a little bit different and probably isn't even an answer to the question. But sometimes people will say, look at this growth of canned wine, right? And this hockey stick growth. And Are you going to make a canned wine? And I believe the growth of canned wine is 100% attributable to it being approachable. And something about the can, about the format is not all that serious. You know, if I buy this four pack of cans or one can, whatever it is, I'll take a shot at it. And it's almost like, Every other alcoholic beverage where it just doesn't have this stuffiness to it or things like that. So I feel like, is that not the biggest signal in the world to make the entire industry more approachable? 
and make the tent larger, bring in more people. And yeah, maybe some of these people will be totally enraptured by the wine world like you guys are and the knowledge of wine and sort of build on that knowledge. But the only way to get people to do that is to get even more and more people into the tent. So I'd say the goal for the entire industry should be to, at some point, these seltzer drinkers from the frats and universities and wherever else, early 20s, are going to want to graduate to wine or other things. Why not grab some of these people who are going to be ready for it now or over the next, whatever the next period is, and bring them into the wine world and pull them away from the spirits world, which has done a much better job of being approachable. I guess that's why one of the largest resellers of boxed wine has gone over 11 million cases. Yeah, I mean, there's all a zillion of them, right? And it's the same thing. The packaging, it's approachable, doesn't have the bullshit surrounding it, and you're not going to feel dumb when you bring a photo box up to the register. So as we go to wrap up the episode, we have a parting question. What was the most memorable wine you've had in the last year, and who did you drink it with? If we're going to give ourselves a pat on the back, you know, not call out another brand. (laughs) You do that, and then I will. I would say for us, we started a partnership coming on almost two years ago with the Navy SEAL Foundation. We created a Zinfandel for them, specifically that $5 a bottle goes to the foundation. In our first year, we raised just over 81000 This past year, we raised almost 89000 for the foundation. So for us, that was something that as a company, we wanted to be able to give back and who better to back to the men and women who help protect our country and their families who sacrifice to give their loved ones the ability to go out and do so. So for us, we feel it's pretty amazing. And I was at an event with some of the retired servicemen and women and be able to share a glass with them was pretty outstanding. So I would say for me, that's pretty awesome. What about you, Tom? Yeah. So I had a milestone birthday this past fall, had a big party, and we got a super large format wine from Farniente. And it was just a blast to go around pouring the six liter to friends and family. And everyone was definitely overserved, but it was a fantastic wine and a fantastic night. And to me, that's what wine is all about. It should be fun. It should be great for sharing with friends and family and sort of an enhancer for life. So that was it. People don't realize what it really takes for a skill to pour a six liter. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, he was like, hold it and not to like overpour. Right, exactly. So much wine could come out and just shoot out of the glass. It was pretty impressive watching them pour a six liter bottle. Mark, Tom, we appreciate you both spending the time to talk with us about this segment that I think a lot of our industry doesn't really understand or fully grok. We appreciate all the insights that you've been able to share with us. We look forward to getting this episode out there. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Yeah, we appreciate your time, Awesome, you guys. Thank you. What a pleasure meeting you guys and doing this. So thanks so much for the opportunity. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.